Let's pray. Father, in this moment, I ask that your spirit would be active and that he would give us eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ as we look at these amazing claims about our Savior, um, that we wouldn't uh, set them aside, that we wouldn't say, oh, I already know that, or we wouldn't um, be distracted by the thousands of things uh, that can divert our attention and our affections from you. I pray for your mercy and your grace. Uh, we are so in need of you. I am in need of you. Thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. So if you would, open your Bibles to the first chapter of Hebrews. Now we'll read again the section we've been covering, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he had spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I hope that by the time we're done with this section, you realize um, how densely packed it is and how many significant truths are contained phrase by phrase in this section. And don't be discouraged that we're moving through this slowly. I know that mowing your yard isn't as big of a deal up here as it was down in Texas where we're from, but usually there's that section of your yard that you save for last because it's overgrown and the, the weeds are really tall and it just takes you movements like this, you know, one foot at a time, one foot back, and it takes you longer than the rest of the yard because of how dense that grass is. Not that the Word of God is like grass, but that same type of intensity that you have for denser sections, that is what this passage is. So we will move more quickly as, as soon as we get through this section, but as I said earlier several weeks ago, the greater danger... You can move too slowly through a text, but the bigger danger, I think, is moving too quickly and missing what's there. So last week, we looked at length at the phrase that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, and we worked hard to try and frame or picture what is really being meant when we talk about the glory of God. The glory of God is seen as in His holiness. And what we used as an illustration of that is that the entire Old Covenant in all of its systems of sacrifices, 
blood and guilt offerings, the slaughtering of thousands of animals was meant to show to the nation of Israel just how holy God was and how big of a deal it is to enter his presence and how much has to be done to appropriate the right circumstances where a sinner can come near to God. God's glory was seen in his righteousness, not that he just is right, but he does right always. His ways are just. That he, he never has... Think of it this way. There is no point where someone could look at a decision God has made or a choice he has made and say, probably shouldn't have done that. Probably could have done it better. He is not subject to critique. Period. He is always right and he always does right. God's glory was seen also in his exclusivity, that he will share his glory with no one, especially idols, not just carved images that we're familiar with in books and history and the Old Testament, but also idols in our hearts. He will share his glory with no one. God's glory is also seen in his name, that he forgives, he defers his wrath. He extends grace and mercy to Israel for the sake of his name. And his glory is such that he cares deeply, so much so that he sends Jesus eventually to take away sins He cares that deeply about the regard and reputation or respect due his name. God's glory is also seen in his unapproachable light, that he dwells in unapproachable light. No man can see his face and live. That that he's that bright or that radiant that you can't even approach him. God's glory is also seen in his eternality. The way he says it to Job is this. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I, when I stretched out the expanse of the heavens? Where were you when I held the waters of the sea in the small of my hand? Where were you when I told the shore, this is how far you can come and no further? God has always been, and we attempted to just use some language to try and stretch our minds to understand the fact that God has always been, and He always will be, and time for Him is but an instant, and He beholds it all before Him with no effort. And Jesus, this was the big point last week, that Jesus is the radiance of all that. Not not that Jesus just is the glory of God, but He is the radiance of the glory of God or the engulfing brightness of the glory of God. He's not a smaller version of the glory of God. He's not a dumbed-down version of the glory of God. He is the magnified version or the brightest version of all of that that we've just said about the glory of God. So here's the question that we have to answer before we can make progress 
with the two phrases that we are going to look at this morning. He is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So how can Jesus be the radiance of the glory of God? That may seem to you an odd question because we rightly think of Jesus in his proper place. He is right now ruling at the right hand of God. All things have been subjected to him. All authority has been given to him. But I want to put your, put your mind or try to put yourself in the shoes or sandals of those in the first century who would have seen Jesus. How can that one be the radiance of the glory of God? Jesus being the radiance of the glory of God helps us understand the most important aspects of God's glory. Everything we just said before about the glory of God is true. But what Jesus shows us in the way he lived his life, in the way he interacted with people, and what he did with his life, it shows us that God's character and his holiness are the most important things about his glory. That what shines brightest, if, if you will, isn't just the light or the gravity of God's name, it's that He is holy and His character is above reproach. This is the way uh, God says it. He says, don't, we've mentioned this before in our study, but He says, let not the wise man boast in His wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his, His might, nor the rich man boast in His riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and righteousness in the earth, and in these things I delight. That knowing the character and the personhood of God in His holiness is what it means to know God in the most important way. So, it, so this is what we're saying, that God's holiness and His character are the most important aspects of His glory. And this is also seen in how God reveals himself to Moses. If you remember the story, Moses is depressed, he's discouraged, he doesn't want to lead the people anymore, he's tired, and, and he's conversing with God and he says, I, I can do this, and I'm paraphrasing, only if you go with me. And God promises to go with him. And, and then he asks, show me your glory. And this, this is where we get the phrase, no, no man can see my face and live. So you know, hopefully you know the story. God hides Moses in the, a cleft of a rock or, or a little cranny in, in the side of the mountain. And he passes by him, covering him, and Moses sees his back. And this is what the Lord does. He declares his name before Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So His holiness, His character, His purity are what he chooses to declare as he de shows his glory to Moses. Think of what the natural eyes would have seen in Jesus of Nazareth. 
or what they did see. Jesus was unique, to be sure. You see many people very curious about him. You know, the rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, different people. He had large crowds come and hear him. He was unique, but not necessarily impressive to the point of causing massive life change to everyone he met. Right? And in fact, at many points, the majority of his followers left him because they couldn't bear his teaching. He was eccentric, like no one had ever seen someone like this before. He taught with authority, not as our scribes, but not kingly, not not majestic like we were looking for, right? Like we were hoping for in a Messiah. He was engaging and interesting, but not to the point of repentance in many cases. People found him intellectually interesting, but didn't want to change their lives necessarily. He caused a lot of excitement in some, but when he didn't deliver in the ways the people wanted They saw that he was not what they had hoped for or wanted in a Messiah, for the most part. To the point where Jesus is on trial and he's standing beside Pilate. And the people cry out, we have no king but Caesar. Who is this one? He's not our king. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, I hope around this time of year you read Isaiah 53 often. He says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. If you were to meet Jesus in the first century, just walking around the streets of Jerusalem or Bethlehem or wherever He was in Nazareth, you would not have seen that unapproachable light. You would have not felt a gravity in the depth of your soul as you approached Him. He had no form or majesty that we should regard Him. And this is what Paul reflects on in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, None of the rulers of this age understood this referring to the wisdom of God in Christ. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Do you think if Jesus standing there before Pilate or the high priest or Herod were to reveal his full glory as the disciples had a glimpse of on the mountain of transfiguration, that they would have dared give any judgment against him? Not at all. But they didn't understand, they didn't see, they didn't perceive with the eyes of faith the truth about Jesus. Even further, if you look at 2 Corinthians 4, you don't have to turn there, but it's a a pretty important passage when it comes to Jesus. This is what Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, so the enemy, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
And it was Edwards who pointed out, if the enemy is working hard to keep the minds of unbelievers to see the glory of Christ, there's really something there to see. But as he's working, and it's not just in the lives of unbelievers. Think about yourself. Think about your week this week, this past week, or or everything you have coming up. It, does, does your daily schedule lead itself to create opportunities to perceive the, the majestic glory of Christ? Right? You don't just stumble into that. You don't wake up after a hard day the previous day and just contemplating the glory of God in Christ. That's not an accidental thing. It takes work, and the enemy is working hard to keep you from seeing it, believer. And if you're an unbeliever, he's been fully successful and he's blinded your eyes so that you can't see it. And it's only by the Spirit that that is taken away. So what we're doing here, what we're trying to do in, the, in analyzing these two statements is very difficult. We have two statements about the glory of Christ, that He is the exact imprint of the nature of God and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Neither of those two statements could be perceived in looking at the man, Jesus of Nazareth. You don't, you don't immediately get that from just looking at Him. It has to be seen with the eyes of faith. And because of that, it's really difficult. Distractions abound. The enemy is at work against us. And even our own hearts don't want to see the glory of Christ because that means we'd have to repent. And we'd have to live humbly. So it's not inappropriate, I, I don't think, to just pause right now and give us a few moments of silence for you to pray for your own self and for your brothers and sisters in this room. That as we look at these two phrases that we would truly be able to see with the eyes of our hearts that it wouldn't be just another sermon it wouldn't be just another talk it wouldn't be just another bit of theological content before we get about our day but that it would change us so i'll give you a moment to pray Father, draw our attention to these words. And by your Spirit, remove distractions. And help us remove every hindrance and the sin that so easily besets us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And time would fail us to exhaust all that could be said concerning these amazing statements. Everything I've said up to this point is to try and frame or couch these statements in the best possible way. If you're just reading through and you're not, you're not letting the thoughts build on themselves, then you can just pass through and just not, 
notice what's really being said here and the value it has for your everyday. So these aren't things that you can see without the eyes of faith. Not even Jesus' family believed in him. Ever thought how, how, how significant that is for both your faith and defending your faith that Mary and his siblings, they come, to, they come to the place where Jesus is teaching and they even say he's crazy, he's lost his mind. And his brothers didn't follow him until after he was raised from the dead. They, even they didn't see it. They spent 30 plus years with Jesus in Mary's case. And in the case of his brothers, their entire lives. And they didn't see it. So what do these two statements mean? He is the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this, put briefly, is the doctrine of the incarnation. And I'll just go through a couple of points of what that means. And then we'll talk about what it means for us and how you can apply it. And then we'll be done. First, what we should notice in these two statements, the exact imprint of his nature and upholding the universe by the word of his power. In Jesus becoming flesh, there was no loss of deity. No loss of deity. The way Paul says it, in him, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's not like a zip folder, right? And on your computer, you take a big file and you try to make it smaller so you can send it to someone. That's not what happened in Jesus. He is the fullness of deity. While he took on the form of a servant and became flesh, he never stopped being the second person of the Trinity. He never stopped being the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. Imagine that. You can see that the author of Hebrews is trying to, to get our minds to have a very high and exalted view of the person Jesus Christ. Not only is he the exact imprint of the nature of God, but just in case you think that might mean he set aside his divine nature or divested himself of the responsibilities as God, he also upholds the universe by the word of his power. That that one, this one, Jesus Christ, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. There was no loss of deity. Why did it have to be this way? If he were not fully God, his sacrifice in our place could not have eternal and universal significance. If he were anything less than the creator of the universe, the eternally existent one, his sacrifice doesn't have finality. It would not be fitting for him, further, it would not be sitting, fitting for him to be the recipient of all the promises God had made concerning the coming one. We looked at the promises regarding the Son of Man, where he's given dominion and rulership over all the nations. No one else other than God can be the one to receive that. So it has to be God. The one who sits on David's throne and rules forever. No one but God can be the one 
through whom that promise is kept. So all the promises of God concerning the coming one, the Messiah, had to be fulfilled by God himself. And he could not forever function as our Lord unless he is also God. The Messiah could be no one else but God himself. Further, second, there's no loss of humanity. His human nature didn't get muddled or lost. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He took on all of humanity. Why did it have to be this way? If he were not really human, he couldn't be the second Adam. He couldn't be the greater Adam, the one to release us from the curse under Adam. He could not be our older brother where we follow him in his resurrection. His death in our place would have meant nothing unless he is fully human. Further, and I'll, I'll, I'll say these together. It's not as if he's a different mode of divinity or, or, or like a hyper humanity. It's not like it's a third thing, right? You have God or divinity and humanity, creature. It's not like it got blended together and created a third thing. His story, if that were the case, his story would be uniquely his. And we couldn't follow him in his resurrection. His sinless perfection was not lost. His holiness was not lost. The I am is still the I am, even in a physical body. And he lived and lives in perfect holiness and glory. But even in his body that he still has, he lives in perfect holiness, perfect glory. No loss of that holiness. So just a few more comments and then we'll get to what this means for our everyday. This phrase, the universe. That's a big thing. I mean, if any of y'all are into science or physics, maybe what I'm about to say will mean more to you, but as far as we know, or what we can kind of estimate, there are around 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And we can kind of see in, in our immediate area, or what's perceivable by our technology, that there are around 100 billion galaxies of varying sizes, but we're kind of an average size galaxy and our sun is actually a, a pretty small star. And so every one of those hundred billion stars in the Milky Way, most of them larger than ours, every atom, every proton, neutron, and electron sustained by the word of his power in every galaxy, in every planet, and every particle spinning around in its courses upheld by the word of his power 
And this is very personal. I want you to see this. It's not just like he wound it up and set it loose. And it's sustained by his will, like he just decreed it and it's done. By the word of his power. He upholds it. It is his constant, continuous will that all of it continues to exist and doesn't just immediately cease. So what does this mean for me? What does this mean for you in your everyday? The, this, this is the doctrine of the incarnation, or I'll give you a fancy word, the hypostatic union. That Jesus is fully God, 100% God, 100% man, at the same time, no loss or confusion of those essences, something we cannot fully comprehend. What does that mean for us? First, the physical is not subpar existence. Christianity, for over a thousand years, has been plagued by this idea that spirit good, physical bad. It comes from the philosopher Plato, if you want to know the, the origin of that and its influence into Christianity. So our concept of what holiness and purity and what is pleasing to God looks like should not be all spirit and ethereal and clouds and angels and harps. Right? Imagine this. The kingdom of heaven will be here. The city comes down to the earth once it's recreated. There will be mud puddles in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not dirty. It's not bad. Physical is not bad. Most heresies in the early church arose from this idea. They could not understand. They didn't want to say that God became flesh. In fact, if you read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters or Jonathan Edwards' work on angels, the idea is perhaps even that Lucifer and his rebellion and the enemies under his domain, that they didn't like this idea that spirit and matter put together, that God would take on flesh. They found that repulsive and they would not submit to the one who would come in the flesh. That might be the case. I mean, it, it is kind of interesting that this idea of God becoming flesh is what drove many people away from Christianity through heresies, and it's why the Jews didn't even accept Jesus. You can't be the I am. Yahweh would never become flesh. So, secondly, there is no secular and sacred divide. Your work and your job, what you do at home, your chores can be, can be just as much or more service pleasing to God than being a missionary or a pastor. I want you to think about that. That even the life of Paul, as crazy as it was, and all the missionaries that we've heard of, and all the martyrs that have served, 
that your service pleasing to God in your life, in your work, in your home, and in your chores is just as an acceptable, pleasing service to the Lord as theirs. Also, the mundane is kind of a misnomer. That, that, that phrase doesn't work in the Christian vocabulary. So cleaning toilets, taking out the trash, changing diapers, fixing tires, dusting the baseboards, all of that can be worship. Eating a meal is the arena of worship just as much as if you were to go back in time and witness his ascension on the mountain. That you have the opportunity every day and every moment to create in the physical world and in the mundane a situation just as holy and just as pleasing to the Lord. And the enemy wants you to think otherwise. He wants you to think that you've got to be at church or you've got to go to a holy place. You've got to go up on top of a mountain. You've got to have your special quiet time, and you should have that. But the enemy wants you to think that in order to meet God and to live a life really pleasing to the Lord, that you've got to get over and out and away and up and deeper and higher and more intricate. And that is simply not the case. Also, Jesus' incarnation shows what it means to be human. You ever thought about that? That if we really want to know what it means to be human, what this, what this thing is, who are we and where, where have we come from and where are we going? What is the nature and destiny of man? I mean, that's the big question, isn't it? In all of philosophy and psychology. If you want to know what it means to be human, you look at Jesus. Think of this. We are made in the image of God, and Jesus is the image of God. The exact imprint of his nature. So the incarnation, on the one hand, is the most astonishing and incomprehensible thing that has ever happened in the realm of humanity. And at the same time, it is the one thing that lets us understand what it means to be human. Also, in our everyday, we can understand what our destiny is in Christ. The promise to believers is not that just Jesus comes and he saves us from our sins and takes us to heaven after we die. The promise is, is that we will be like him. For we will see him as he is. Our destiny as the people of God is to become like Jesus Christ. We share in his life, we share in his death, and we share his nature. This is how Jesus says it in John 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Right? That's you and me that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, so that they may be in us 
that the world may know, the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So our destiny as believers is to become like him. Also, and the author of Hebrews makes this point later, and we'll spend a significant amount of time talking about this, that Jesus is able to empathize with you as your high priest. He took on flesh. I mean, just just consider that. Consider Jesus' life up to 30. I'm 30. He had to wake up tired. He had to run a business. He was a carpenter. He had to take care of his mom. He likely had to bury his earthly father, Joseph, because he's nowhere in the text in Jesus' later life. He had to deal with siblings, ones who thought he was crazy. He had to clean himself. He had to endure betrayal, embarrassment, temptation without sin, to be sure. He had to deal with hunger, homelessness, poverty, and finally death. So in the mundane, in the day-to-day, remember that Jesus took on flesh so that he could be able to say, I really do know what you're going through. I really do understand. And not just because he has all knowledge as God, because it happened to him. And there was no loss of his glory, glory and no loss of his deity as he went through that. So, Christian, this is what it means to do everything to the glory of God. That like Jesus, in the mundane and in the day to day, we understand that that is the arena of worship, that is the arena of glory, and that is the arena of pleasing the Lord. For us, during this time of year, we get to celebrate the miracle of the Incarnation. That God became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. So let's not leave Jesus in the feeding trough. Let's look to him. Let's look at him in his life and see him live out the will of the Father. Knowing that he is the exact imprint of his nature. All while upholding the universe by the word of his power. Let's pray. Father, words fail us, yet at the same time, you chose to disclose yourself in a book with words. And so as we try to process the words through which you reveal yourself, I ask that you would give us much help. And I pray that as I have attempted to raise Jesus up, to exalt and glorify Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would move powerfully in the lives of everyone here, including myself, to make us more like Christ. 
and to make us look forward to his second coming and to make our every day and our day to day more like his. And that we would do everything to the glory of God. And I pray that if there's anyone here who has not yet met Jesus, that they would see his glory and be changed. I pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen.